But for this morning, let's get to it. It's time, right? Luke chapter 9, as we continue the journey with Jesus through Luke. Grab your Bible. As you do, I'm going to pray us in. Father, right now, um, we thank you for the gifts and blessings, uh, primarily of this, this space that you have used some very gifted and special people to create. You've used your people's generosity and you've given us vision. I ask God that it uh, would accomplish for you and your glory and your kingdom all that we have imagined and more. That's our prayer. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention and minds and hearts to your word, change us, renew us, restore us, help us to hear afresh uh, your longing for and calling on our lives. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Haven't you been there before? Up on the mountain? You know, the mountain, that place where you can see out so far, so clearly, because there's nothing there to block your view. You know, the mountain, that place where God speaks, and you hear his voice, and he seems closer than he's ever been before. Have you ever been to the mountain? You know that season or time or moment in your life where the world and all of its challenges and difficulties and obstacles and struggles are so diminished and minimized and far away because you are on the mountain with God. You ever been there before to the mountain? See, the mountain is not just a geographical location. The mountain is not simply the physical reality of going up in altitude. In the Bible, the mountain is that place where the glory of God is so big and it shines so bright that our other cares and worries, our light and momentary troubles, pale in comparison to our experience of who Jesus really is. Ever found yourself in a mountain place with God. Maybe it was a week at summer camp when you were a kid, or a retreat weekend you went on, or or time that you spent with a spiritual mentor, or even just a season of your life where you were learning and growing and experiencing God's presence like you never have before. Mountain top experiences. Aren't they so good? Unfortunately, that is not where our story takes place today. Last week... We were up there last week. We were up on the mountain with Jesus. But this week, Luke begins our story with some very different words. In fact, with these words, Luke chapter 9, verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain. You see, our story today is not about the high point of your experience with God, but instead what you do with that experience in the midst of the everyday life and questions and challenges and struggles the people in this world will face. Our story today is not about the glory of going up. It's about the challenge of coming down. And this morning, Luke is going to use this trip down the mountain to teach us about what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. What real status in the eyes of the Father looks like. Luke chapter 9 verse 37. The next day when they, that's Jesus and the disciples, came down from the mountain a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out Teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out 
but they could not. Well, friends, talk about back to life, back to reality. This is one of those moments, right? In one day, in one sentence in Luke's gospel, we have now shifted from glory and power and presence with God up on the mountain to arguing and suffering and helplessness. From solitude with the Lord to a great crowd to Moses and Elijah or from Moses and Elijah to a distressed father and his possessed by a demon son. And friends, here is the very first point I want to make. It's the point that sort of surrounds this introduction as Luke launches us into this next section. Greatness, as defined by God, greatness in His kingdom is not defined by the magnitude or frequency of our mountaintop experiences, but by how we live out of those experiences when we encounter the pain and suffering of this world. I'll say that again. Greatness in God's kingdom is not defined by the magnitude or frequency of our mountaintop experiences, but by how we live out of those experiences when we encounter the pain and suffering of this world. Here's here's a question I hope we wrestle with today. Do we have experiences of God that transform us into the people we need to be in the valley? Or do we just look for experiences of God for experience's sake. You see, sometimes in the Christian world that we live in, in the 21st century American evangelical Christian world, the goal of religion and spirituality and Jesus even seems to somehow be communicated this way. How can you get back up the mountain? How can we create or orchestrate or find another amazing, supernatural, emotional experience with God? And we collect those moments like, like prize souvenirs that are the proof of our spirituality and, and allegiance to Jesus. Friends, hear me clearly this morning. I am not against those moments. Those moments, those seasons, those times, they are not bad. They're great. They are a wonderful gift. But they are not the goal of the Christian life. The experience of the Christian life is to be so changed by our experience with Jesus that we are transformed to be His redemptive agents in the world. You know that song we started off with this morning? I have decided to follow Jesus. The scripture passage this week has punched me in the nose. And as we sang that song this morning, all I could think was, I have decided, but I'm still deciding. I have decided to follow Jesus, but I'm still figuring out. I have decided to follow Jesus, but I've still got a lot to learn and a long way to go because following Jesus isn't just a moment, it's a lifetime. Friends, where are suffering, hurt, pain, oppression, heartache, and hatred being driven back because of God's work in and through you down here? You see, we encounter God up there. We meet with Him on the mountain so that we can come down and tackle the issues of this world in partnership with Him. The up there experience isn't just a warm, fuzzy moment that we can kind of notch our belt with and say, I met God. The up there experience is supposed to translate to coming down the hill. You see, friends, there are hurting people in this world. There's sin and suffering and brokenness and damage. People like this man, this father, and we must not miss him. You know, Luke in no other way 
uh, and no, like no other gospel writer, the stories in a couple of the other gospels. But Luke very uniquely tells this story such that we might relate with this father, that we might empathize with him and sympathize with him and understand what he is going through. Luke alone tells us this is an only child. Some of you in here have children. Some of you in here know what it means to, to pull your heart out of your chest and watch it walk around in front of you. Some of you know the vulnerability and the insecurity of being a parent. This man's only child has been possessed by a demon. It's a, it were told this, he begged the disciples. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Think for a minute about that word, begged. Have you ever in your entire life begged for anything? See, I'm not talking about I begged my parents for dessert after dinner. I'm not talking about I begged my wife that she would let me spend the money on that new car. No, I'm talking about begging for the life of your kid. I begged the disciples. Do you hear the, the tenor of helplessness and powerlessness in that word? This man is virtually helpless, powerless to change the reality he is facing on his own. He has nowhere else to go. Do you see him? Do you notice him? Do you connect with and relate to his pain? Does your experience with Jesus on the mountain cause you to think about him and approach him and offer yourself to him in a different way? Does Jesus change your experience with this father? And if that's a new question for you, not how do I get back up, how do I go up to God, but where is God sending me down, then you're in good company. If you haven't thought about your faith in this way, then you're just like some familiar friends of ours, the disciples, because this is a new question, a new paradigm for them as well. And they blow it in this passage big time. This whole entire chapter is not the best moment for them. Let's go back for just a minute before we move on and and simply imagine for a few minutes how this scene might have played out. Because these are the guys that have been watching Jesus do his thing. They've been traveling with Jesus. They've been studying Jesus. They've been learning from Jesus um, for quite a while now. They've watched him heal people, drive out demons, time and time again perform miracles. He's even sent them out, empowered them to do similar things. They've experienced the healing, working power of Jesus coming and flowing through them. They've had all these experiences. And now, now to top all that off, he's taken them up on the mountaintop. He's shown them his glory. He singled them out as sort of his all-star pupils, the ones with the most potential, the all-star disciples, if you will. And they're feeling pretty good about it, pretty confident about the power they are now associated with, the power that's at their fingertips. And then this man, this father, comes to them, not to Jesus. He doesn't bring his son to Jesus. He brings his son to them. You guys know Jesus? Yes, we do. You guys are associated with Jesus? Yes, we are. You're Jesus' disciples? You better believe it, bub. Well, can you help me? I bet you we can. And the passage doesn't tell us this, but I imagine they're feeling pretty confident at this point feeling pretty capable, maybe even a little cocky. And so they try. They do all the things they can think of to heal this boy, to drive out this demon. Probably all the things they've seen Jesus do, but nothing works. 
their big moment of glory, their big spiritual moment where people are finally going to see how spiritual they are and special they are and significant they are in the kingdom of God. Gather around, folks. This man needs some help with his kid. We got this. We rebuke you. Come out of him. Be healed. Come out. Zappo, Alakazam, bippity-boppity-boo. Right? You can just imagine all the things they tried here. Nothing. So they take the long walk of shame back to Jesus. With this boy still possessed, still sick, this father still grieving. And instead of saying what we'd all expect Jesus to say in this moment, you know, it's all right, guys. Hey, you, you know, no worries. You'll get them next time. You did your best. E for effort. If you had fun, you won. Trophies for everyone. Right? That's what Jesus always says. Instead, in this moment of failure by the disciples, listen to the words Jesus chooses. Verse 41. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Now, do you get the impression that Jesus is maybe more than just a little upset with them, or is it just me? These two words, unbelieving and perverse, in Greek they mean to act without faith, to act without trusting God, to corrupt or pervert or distort, to turn aside and go off the path that God wants you to be on. You see, Jesus understands here that the disciples are not trying to heal this boy for God's glory, but for theirs. This attempt made by them, it's not about, you know, exalting God and His greatness. It's about lifting up their own greatness. It's not about advancing the status of God in this world. It's about claiming status for themselves. And so Jesus turns to this father and says, bring your son here. And then we're told, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And then, then, the capstone verse of this initial opening section. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. You see, that's what Jesus wants. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what his kingdom does. It lifts up the greatness of God, not the greatness of you. Jesus wants not a production of your power, of your abilities, of your capability, not a spiritual show that will bring you glory that you do not deserve and frankly cannot handle. Jesus says, let's keep the focus where it belongs, Lord. When Jesus gets involved, the focus and credit and status and recognition always, always, always go to the Father. Friends, at the very core of this story is this reality. Greatness in the kingdom is not about the power of Jesus making you great, but about the power of Jesus in you highlighting that God is great. And so often we get those two things entangled, mixed up and confused. And that's actually the message throughout this entire passage. This entire passage is a warning, a warning to these disciples, a warning to the church throughout the generations. It's a warning that power and popularity and status and acclaim and notoriety and fame are not what God longs for his followers to seek. In fact, 
as Jesus will soon teach us, it's the exact opposite. God wants the exact opposite for his children. Verse 43, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. In Greek, that last phrase there, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, it it literally reads this way in the Greek. You set your ears, you set into your ears these words. He gathers the disciples together and he says, you set into your ears these words. This is one of those moments I kind of like picture my dad. Uh, my dad was a big man. He was a Division I football player. He played offensive line. He was also an Air Force officer, so he had some, 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 some moxie to him. And he, he wore these standard issue silver-framed Air Force glasses. And when he would get upset, he would sweat. My dad can sweat like no one else. And so his glasses would sort of slide down his nose. And when my brother and I were in trouble, one of his favorite things to do is he'd call us right up to him, and he'd look right over the top of those glasses, sit down on his nose, and he'd say, look me right here in the eye and you'd be like oh. All right, and they'd tell you what he wanted you to hear that's kind of Texas way of saying you set into your ears these words boy <laughs> and we did most of the time uh, Jesus is saying disciples listen up what I'm about to tell you needs to get stamped burned engraved into your minds and hearts like nothing else and here's what he says The Son of Man, that's the way Jesus refers to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's just Bible code language for, I'm going to get crucified, fellas. Burn this into your brain. I'm going to the cross. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. You see, the disciples... This this completely turns upside down the paradigm they have in mind, their hopes and dreams and aspirations and goals. This is not why they left their families. This is not why they walked away from their careers. This is not why they've given their entire lives so that their leader, the chosen Messiah, the one saving uh, agent of God in this world, they did not follow him so that he could go to the cross and die. And so as much as they want to understand, as much as they possibly can understand, they don't want to hear it. They're afraid to even ask about it. This is not the message they've been hoping for. You see, in the world that they lived in, the Messiah, the Savior, religious and spiritual victory, all of it was attached to political victory. All of it was attached to world victory. If you won in the spiritual realm, you won in the earthly realm. If your guy was on top spiritually, then you were going to be on top in this world. But what Jesus continues to teach his disciples, and this is not the first time he's told them this, is that his kingdom is not about earthly glory, recognition, power, fame, honor, or elevated status of any kind. And friends, this is going to be blunt today. But in comfortable suburban America with comfortable suburban pastors, this may be one of the most important messages for us to hear. You and me, living a good, comfortable life of notoriety is of no concern to God at all. I'd say it's low on God's list, but I don't even think it's on God's list. And I'll say it again. You and me, living a good, comfortable life of notoriety and recognition is of no concern to God at all. 
I was listening to a woman this week talk, and she was talking about this very thing, and here's what she said. She said, all of us want to change the world. All of us want to make a difference for God. We just want to do it from the comfort of our normal lives. You see, Jesus, he grabs his guys and he says, impossible, can't happen. It's not how God works. No way. Jesus says, do you understand, gentlemen, that at the end of this thing, they are going to hang me on a cross? Set that into your ears. Set those words into your brain. And friends, here's where I think we as evangelical Christians sometimes miss it. We sometimes just so cheapen the cross. We make it such a one-dimensional thing. Because the cross is not just something Jesus has endured for you. It is also an example of the radically sacrificial life Jesus offers to you. I'll say that again. The cross is not just something Jesus has endured for you. It is also an example of the radically sacrificial life Jesus offers to you. It's a picture of the life he calls his followers to live. You see... The disciples are off leveraging God's work and power in their lives for worldly self-advancement. Hey, everyone, look what we can do. Aren't we cool? We're with Jesus. And Jesus says, wait a minute, fellas. Have you missed the fact that I'm going to be crucified? Wait a minute, fellas. If you are looking for fame and power and status and comfort and notoriety, you're on the wrong bus. Verse 46, we'll see if the disciples understand what Jesus is offering. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. I don't think they're getting it. Anyone else? I mean, have you ever tried to tell someone something and they just aren't getting what you're saying? It's just like communication, communication, and they're just missing it, missing it, missing it. I was downstairs yesterday and... Um, it, and in bursts into the room bursts our little five-year-old foster son and he comes in and he's all excited he's like can me and dax do this thing he's asking this big question this big elaborate thing that he and my son dax want to do out in front of our house and it's this very elaborate plan and i said hey bud did dax send you down here And he just kind of looks at me and I go, you tell Dax that if he wants to do that thing that you guys want to do, he needs to come down here and ask me himself instead of sending you down here to do his dirty work. And he just kind of looks at me like, huh? And I I said, you need to go tell Dax that if he wants, because my kids have already figured out it's a strategy, right? If we want dad to say yes, we send the five-year-old foster son in. The chances go way up, right? Hey, Sylvia, go down and ask dad. And so, but in this case, I'm, it's actually a really good strategy. It works some of the time. But in this case, I'm on to him. And so I'm like, mm-mm, tell dad. And, and he's like, I don't understand. I said, okay, you need to go tell Dax. And finally, he, my, he just looks at me. He goes, I don't know what you're saying to me. It's like, all I need is yes or no. <laughs> and I said, tell Dax to come down and see me. <laughs> um, yeah. Friends, the disciples clearly do not understand what Jesus is trying to tell them here. So now he will make it as clear to them and as simple to them as he possibly can. This is when Jesus starts to speak real slow. Verse 47. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one 
who is least among you all, who is the greatest. Now, let me say a word here. Obviously, this passage, and in in this passage, Jesus affirms his commitment to and love for children. That's, That's without question. However, but this passage goes much further than that. Do not walk away this morning thinking, Jesus likes kids and I should too. Good sermon, Pastor. That is not the point. It goes so much farther than that. And so often this passage is is, is sort of regurgitated to sort of make the statement that Jesus liked kids and so we should like kids too. Jesus did like kids. We should like kids too. And yet our calling is so much higher and farther and stronger and deeper, just like we sang about earlier. This passage is about what this, what status in the kingdom of God does and does not look like. This passage is about where true greatness in God's eyes is found. Children in Jesus' day, they were loved, but they were not special. They had no social status, status at all. In fact, they were regarded as insignificant. And so what Jesus is saying here by taking this this insignificant, no status attached to child and standing it next to him, what he's saying is greatness, gentlemen, in the kingdom, status in God's eyes, the way he measures it, is embracing the sacrificial path of Jesus so deeply that those of insignificance in this world begin to have enormous significance to us. That's the message. I'll read it again. Do not miss it. Status in God's eyes, the way he measures it, is embracing the sacrificial path of Jesus so deeply that those of insignificance in this world begin to have enormous significance to us because we see them through the eyes of our Father. Greatness in the kingdom is found when we begin to lift and love and notice and serve and hear and understand those who are not considered to be great in this world at all, those who can do nothing for us in return, those whose status and stature will not bolster ours in any way. Friends, how has the mountaintop experience with Jesus prepared you for life in the valley? Where is your experience with God turning your heart towards the marginalized and disenfranchised, the hurting, poor, oppressed, the orphans, the widows, the people of this world, the Bible, time and time and time again says that God cares so much about. Do you care about them? Do we? And let me tell you why I believe Jesus continues to pound this message into us just over and over and over again in the Gospels. The reason is because we're just like the disciples. We're a lot more like them than I'd care to admit sometimes. We hear what Jesus is saying, but here's the truth. Our desire, the desire in me and the desire in you for status and recognition and comfort and notoriety and importance and glory, it runs deep. Stop just for a second this morning and consider what path you're on. What Jesus say to you, you unbelieving and perverse generation you're on the wrong path you're not living for god you do not represent me in this world are those the words he'd he'd choose for you what path are you on 
Be honest with yourself. Look at your life. Think about your priorities. Consider how you spend your time and energy and money. Consider how you use your talents and ask yourself this hard question. Is my life about seeking kingdom greatness or am I really all about attaining worldly greatness for myself? Is my life about kingdom greatness or is my life about worldly greatness? I'll say it again. Jesus says this, greatness in the kingdom is seen when those of insignificance in this world begin to have enormous significance to us. And so let me make this passage real practical today. Is there one place in your life where you can take one step towards loving, embracing, hearing, helping, serving the people of this world God cares so much about? Because you know, you can't save the world. You can't do it alone. Every injustice, every wrong, every need will not be met by you. God's not asking you to do that, but He is asking you to meet the needs of the people He brings into your life. Is there one place where you can step towards the heart of God and living the way he longs for you to live in the valley? Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. I just, I wonder how long of a pause there was between those words and this next verse. I can just see Jesus. I mean, I'm sure Jesus was more patient than me. But I imagine this is one of those like deep sighs, head down, shaking his head moments. The disciples kind of waiting. What's he going to say next? I think you blew it, John. I'm pretty sure that was wrong too. You're starting to sound like Peter, you know. Um, Master said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For what whoever is not against you is for you. You'll remember that this story began with the inability of the disciples to drive out a demon. And now it concludes with their jealousy over someone else who's actually able to pull off what they couldn't do. I mean, do they need a flashing sign? Guys, it's not about you. Friends, you will know your motivations for greatness have gotten off track when the spiritual success of others creates jealousy in you. You'll know that your motivations have gotten out of whack. When someone else is spiritually successful, when they're doing something for God, when they're encountering God in a special way, when their life seems to be going the right on the right path, and in you, instead of joy and enthusiasm and encouragement, you feel that twinge of jealousy, that competitive spirit, that thing that wants to justify your life and tear their life down. I gotta tell you, I can relate to this one. Man, I wish I could tell you, I really wish I could, that every time another church or another pastor accomplishes something for the kingdom, my initial instinctive response was, great news, good for them, I'm so blessed that God is using that pastor and church to do amazing work for the kingdom. I'm actually really sorry to tell you that that is not always how I think or feel. Sometimes, like the disciples in this story, this thing comes up in me, called jealousy. Sometimes I'm critical. Sometimes I'm envious of others' success and I'm tempted to look for ways of proving myself or showing that I or we are just as good as, if not better than them. And let me tell you, although I confess this tendency to you this morning, I sometimes 
have that in my life, it is absolutely, absolutely unacceptable. One of the greatest gifts I've received in ministry in the last two years is, is encountering the generous spirit of unity found in the Portland churches. It is contagious, friends. I love it. I long for it. I want to grow in it. I want you to grow in it. I want us to grow in it. It is certainly reflective of the heart of God. Because here's the deal, deal Cedar Mill, and I'm preaching to myself here as much as I'm preaching to you. We have enough opposition in this world to go around There are forces, powerful forces opposing us and trying to thwart the advancement of God's kingdom all over the place. And God's church, the bride of Christ, as those people, we have been charged with advancing God's kingdom in this world and overcoming the forces of evil and beating back the gates of hell in this world. That's our call. There's enough battles to go around. We don't have to start getting envious or jealous of the battles other people, other Christ followers, other churches are fighting. We can find some fights too. Jesus says here, waste no time competing with and bickering with one another. Waste no time and precious energy in this world, in this battle, comparing yourselves to one another. That is not a kingdom perspective. It'll only sidetrack us, Jesus says, from from becoming the people we've been called to be and accomplishing the mission we've been called to accomplish. It will do us no good. Instead, Jesus says, encourage one another. Rally one another. Push one another forward. Encourage someone else in their battle, in their fight, in their mission advancement for the kingdom and get on with yours. Don't ask, am I better than this person? Is my mission better than this person's? Ask, God, what mission do you have for me and how can I best accomplish it with your help and empowerment? Where are you calling me, Lord? Where are you calling us, Lord? Because we know you've got a job for us to do and we want to be faithful to get it done. This is what Paul says to the early church. This is Hebrews chapter 10. He says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And you know what's funny? The, the, the statement immediately following this is one of the primary ways that this happens. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, you see, the reason you gather together in this room is to encourage each other on mission. That's why you get together here. We don't get together here so we can compare ourselves to one another. Well, what are you doing for God? I'm doing this for God. I'm doing that for God. Well, Sergio got a gift, and I wish I had a gift. If Pastor Dave only knew how much I did for the church, then I should get... Right? No. We gather in this room to see how God is working in and amongst all of us, separately, individually, and then also together. And that should encourage you. We should encourage each other. What are you doing? How's life? How's God working in your life? How's he advancing the kingdom through you? How are you bringing the mountain to the valley? That's what this gathering is about. And that's why when we gather together in this room, we come to this table every Sunday. Get at this table, that's where we remember the one who modeled what mission looks like for us. It's not about status. It's not about saying, look at me. It's not about, about trying to gain some recognition or popularity. You see, here's what happens. Sometimes, here's what Christians do. They take Jesus and they just slap him onto their kind of worldly uh, philosophy and goals and objectives. They kind of treat Jesus like this, this self-help 
status advancement tool for their life in this world. Well, if Jesus was a part of my life, then I'll be better. I'll be a better person. I can be more powerful. I can be more likable. I can be more famous. I can get farther along in this world. I can get more stuff. Like, my status will grow. Everyone will like me. Right? Jesus says, that's not what I'm about at all. Others of us, though, others of us, we're a little more subtle than that. We say, no, we're not about worldly status and advancement. We're not going to use Jesus just to advance our agenda in the world. We're not about that stuff. But what we do is we use Jesus to try and do the same thing spiritually. Right? Look at me. I love God so much. I pray. You should see how much I pray. Man. And what are we trying to do? We're just using Jesus for our own self-advancement, friends. Jesus is not about our self-advancement, worldly or spiritual. He's about God advancement. He's about lifting up the greatness of God. And that's what he does on the cross. He says, look how powerful my father is. He's even more powerful than death. Not even this grave can hold me. And so we gather together, friends, to remember who the great one really is. The one who died the one who rose. That's why we gather together. That's why we encourage one another to be a part of his mission, his status, his glory, the advancement of his greatness, not our own. And that's a message, I'll say this, I need to hear all the time. So take a few minutes today. Think about where God's calling you down the mountain or he's using you where he's working through you, where he wants you to take that step. And then when you're ready, you come to the table, take the elements, hold on to them, and we'll receive them together in just a moment. A quote from one of my favorite scholars, and he writes about this passage we looked at today and what it means. Um, Before I do, I want to remind you, join us upstairs. Uh, Explore this space that God has blessed us with that I pray he will use to advance his kingdom powerfully in this world. But hear this as you go. This is uh, from William Barclay. He says this. It is easy to feel Christian in the moment of prayer and meditation. It is easy to feel close to God when the world is shut out and when heaven is very near. But that is not real religion. That is escapism. Real religion is to rise from our knees before God, to meet men and the problems of, of the human situation. Real religion is to draw strength from God in order to give it to others. Real religion involves both meeting God in the secret place and men in the marketplace. Real religion means taking our own needs to God, not that we may have peace and quiet and undisturbed comfort, but that we may be enabled graciously, effectively, and powerfully to meet the needs of others. That, my friends, is the church. That's our call. Let's go be the church. See you soon, Cedar Mill.